Welcome to Bite Size Battles. King Alfred and his family stumbled through the marshes of Somerset, freezing cold and sodden wet. Their terror at being discovered by the Vikings kept them going deeper into the wetlands, finding the causeways Alfred used to use when he had spent years exploring them as a boy. Just hours earlier, they had been feasting in the Great Hall in Chippenham, celebrating the twelfth night of Christmas. But then, the Viking warlord Guthrum had suddenly attacked the city, aiming to surprise Alfred and capture him. So the King of Wessex had ridden hard to the Somerset marshes with his family and a few guards, the only place he could think of that he knew the Vikings would not think to look for him. Alfred seethed that he had had to run or die, and seethed even more with the knowledge that his earldom of Wiltshire, where Chippenham was based, must have betrayed him to Guthrum. What would happen to his kingdom now? He knew that even as he thought the words, Guthrum's men would be spreading across Wessex, dismembering it, occupying it, infecting it with their presence and pagan ways. God help me, he thought. How was he to come back from this? The King of Wessex, nothing more than a cold, wet fugitive, hiding out in the marshes of Somerset. But thoughts of the future would have to wait, because he needed to make sure that he and his family actually survived the bitter cold of early January 878. His children were with him, the eldest of them his daughter, Aethelflaed, eight years old and wide-eyed with fear and cold, but visibly determined to be brave. Even so, she was shivering, and that sight alone made all thoughts of Guthrum and Wessex vanish. It was early morning, and Alfred cast his eyes about him, suddenly spotting a faint but unmistakable column of smoke rising into an overcast sky. Way too small to be a burning village attacked by the Vikings. Probably just a single fire. Alfred sent a guard ahead to check it out, and he came back to say that there was a small village up ahead, and no sign of the Norse. Mouthing a thank you to God, he and his family moved forward, eventually coming to the place, a collection of huts with wooden frames, wattle and daub walls, and thinly thatched roofs. And what Alfred had thought was one column of smoke was actually several, one from each of the huts rising lazily from holes in the thatch. The king thought he had never seen anything that looked so good. The villagers, on the other hand, had. They stared at the filthy, shivering newcomers with a mix of trepidation, curiosity, fear and concern. Alfred's household had shed their fine clothes for rags to more easily slip past any Viking patrols, and even now they did not want even these villagers to know who they really were. Thankfully, no one asked. But a burly, ruddy-cheeked woman suddenly pushed through the crowd of onlookers, cursing them for their manners. For God's sake, she said, there are children here shaking like a leaf in an autumn wind. 
She waddled over, looking Alfred in the eyes, guessing somehow that he was their leader. Come in now, she said gently, taking his children by the hand. She sent Alfred's wife and children to a neighbour's hut while he went into her house. It was small and dark and smoky, but dear Christ, Alfred thought, that warmth of the cooking fire was heaven itself. The woman busied herself in the hut, asking a barrage of questions about who he was and why on earth he had been dragging a bunch of children through the marshes on a cold morning like this. Her voice floated over Alfred's consciousness, exhausted as he was, and now suddenly able to think of the disaster that had befallen Wessex again. It was all Alfred could do to smile and thank her for taking him and his family in. She stared at him, but contented herself with that, beginning to lay out Wheaton cakes to cook on the fire. She was going to check on the children, she told him. Watch those cakes for me and don't let them burn. Alfred half heard her and nodded, allowing the woman to bustle through the door. But as soon as she'd left, Alfred's mind wandered constantly, filled with self-recrimination, anger, praying, and the minute details of how he would need to turn this dire situation around. Time passed. So many thoughts flitted through his head that he lost all sense of anything, unable to focus on this or that. And still time passed. Eventually the woman came rushing back in and immediately cried out at the state of her cakes, overcooked and burned. Alfred winced inside and out, coming out of his reverie, horrified at himself for forgetting to care for them. He opened his mouth to apologise, but the woman rounded on him, cuffing him around the head and lambasting him as a foolish oaf without even the sense to look after some cakes. But as she knocked him about, reality dawned for Alfred. Wessex was like the cakes. He hadn't cared for the kingdom well enough, hadn't paid its defence enough attention, and now Wessex was burning. That realisation came like a thunderbolt, clearing Alfred's mind of the fog of worry and indecision. He knew what he had to do now, and there was no time to waste. He was going to take his kingdom back. Why are you smiling, the woman shrieked as she gave him a solid right hook. I'm Andrew McKenzie, and welcome to the third episode of Viking England, The Battle of Eddington. Alfred did two things pretty much straight away. First, he sent messengers telling the lords and officials of Wessex that their king was still alive and still determined to fight. That they knew this was of critical importance, that Alfred's banner of resistance to the Vikings still flew, and so should theirs. But of course, in letting his lords know that, he was effectively telling Guthrum the same thing too. Some messengers would inevitably be caught and forced to speak. Spies were everywhere, and Alfred still didn't know at this point if any of his other lords had already betrayed him like Wolf here had and so pass his messages directly to his enemies. But it was a risk worth taking, 
and it paid off immediately. No sooner had his first messages gone out, had the minor lords or thanes of Somerset began coming to him in the marshes, swelling his ranks from a handful to a few. It wasn't much, but it was a real psychological boost. That boost and the threat of Viking warbands showing up at any moment spurred Alfred to do the second thing as a matter of haste. He built a fort. The place he chose was Athelney, a pair of hills deep in the Somerset levels, 40 feet high and surrounded by the marsh that Alfred now called home. With Anglo-Saxons now coming in daily, he used the fort as a centre of operations and launched multiple hit-and-run raids on Viking patrols and outlying bases. Guthrum closed his forces around the marshes but couldn't find a way through. It was a midden of waterlogged land and hidden causeways. Alfred and his men used locals who knew the area to carry them in small punts which skidded across the water at speed. After years of using their longboats to surprise and destroy Anglo-Saxons from the sea, the Vikings were now surprised by Anglo-Saxon raiders suddenly appearing out of nowhere from punts, killing a few men and spreading fear before slinking back into the marshes. It was those same wetlands that supported Alfred and his growing force too, with an abundance of fish, eels and wildfowl. Soon, even Castle was led to Athelney through the causeways. Blacksmiths set up shop in the fort, forging weapons and armour. Archaeological evidence still exists for this at Athelney. Alfred was making an army. But despite all the good news, it would come to nothing if he could not gather the men from the other shires, and that required the loyalty and commitment of their earldermen. Alfred was still sending messengers out to them, but often could not get messages back. Viking patrols had thickened and many of the lords simply bided their time, unwilling to commit heavily to either Guthrum or Alfred until a clear winner emerged. In the meantime though, another danger emerged to the west, in Devon. The fearsome warlord Uber the last surviving son of Ragnar Lothbrok, had brought a Viking fleet and 1,200 men to Devon in Alfred's rear. Things looked grim for Wessex's future king. He couldn't simply continue his guerrilla campaign against Guthrum forever. Eventually, he would have to sally from his waterbound fastness and fight him. But he couldn't do that now a second large Viking army was in his rear. He risked being caught between them, and that would only spell disaster. Alfred prayed as he always did, and perhaps God was listening, because Uber had landed his fleet right beneath the fort of Chinwit. At first the army of Devon came with their earldman Odder, but quickly shut themselves away inside the fort. Chinwit was on a steep slope and easily defensible, but it lacked a supply of fresh water, a fact not lost on Uber. Not wanting to lose men in a direct assault and not wanting to leave an enemy in his rear, Uber decided to lay siege and wait them out. After all, 
Without water, it would be three days, maybe four, until his men could simply walk through the gates. So Uba posted pickets around Chinwit to make sure no one could escape, and milled around with the rest of his men on the beach below, waiting for the inevitable. But Odder and the men of Devon knew as well as Uba that they wouldn't last long without water, and so made the fateful decision to seek death with honour instead of death by dehydration. So, armed and ready, Odder and the men of Devon suddenly flung the gates of Chinwit open and surged down the hillside screaming war. Odder probably had around a thousand men with him, and the sight of a thousand Anglo-Saxons streaming downhill towards you, spears, swords and axes held aloft, ready for savage downcuts in the charge, was enough to make even battle-loving Vikings take a step or two back. Such was the speed of the attack that Uber had no time to organise his shocked men into a shield wall, and before he could even call on Thor to help them, Odder's men were on them, hacking, slashing, stabbing, screaming bloody slaughter. By posting the pickets around Chinwit, Uber had left his main force depleted, and now that disparity in numbers combined with Odder's ferocity to destroy the Vikings. Northmen began to fall by the dozen, and their will broke like waves on the beach. They swarmed back to their longboats, pursued by Odder's men, who scrambled on board just as quickly as the Vikings. It became a hunt. The pickets, hearing the fighting, returned at the run, but exhausted and coming in piecemeal, they could have no effect on the outcome. Uber's army had been destroyed, and Uber himself, once one of the most feared Viking warriors of all, lay dead with his men on the beach. The Battle of Chinwit is little known, overshadowed by the larger and soon-to-come Battle of Eddington, but it was utterly crucial in the resurgence of Alfred's Wessex. Without Odder's victory at Chinwit, Alfred would have been without Odder's men at Eddington, all dead in the fort, and even worse, he would have been caught between Uber's hammer and Guthrum's anvil. Without Chinwit then, it's likely that all English history from that point on would have taken a very different path. Alfred himself was keenly aware of its significance, gave thanks to God and, of course, to Odder. He became convinced now was the time to strike out, to finally deal with Guthrum once and for all. Whatever the outcome, this was it. He sent a final flurry of messengers to the lords of Wessex. Your king, they said, waits for you at Egbert's Stone, a well-known local landmark. He marched there with perhaps 800 men, not knowing if his summons would be answered. It was a minor miracle he had the 800 he did, but they alone would not be enough. Guthrum could muster three or maybe four thousand. Alfred knew that Odder was on the way following Chinwit, but he still needed more and he simply did not know if they would come. He must have marched to Egbert's stone with his heart in his mouth. Everything rested on the loyalty of his earldom. 
If they came, they would have a chance. If not, Alfred would probably have to run, find a ship with his family and live out his days in self-imposed exile. But as he approached Egbert's stone, there was nothing to be seen. No men, no banners, no army. Alfred's heart sank. It was May 878, and there was a late spring warmth to the air. A breeze atop the hill curled through Alfred's hair, and he looked to the heavens as if searching for God, but could see nothing but birds and blue sky. The words of Jesus on the cross entered his mind, Why, Lord, have you forsaken me? But just as he asked the question, a shout from a lookout startled him. He looked at the man and followed his gaze and excited gestures to a valley about a mile away. Emerging from a wood there were the banners of Somerset, Hampshire and Wiltshire, and endless files of men followed them. The army of Wessex had come to its king. The exact numbers of Alfred's army are unclear, but the third of just one shire would have been a powerful array of perhaps 2,000 men. It's possible then that Alfred had around 6,000 men, maybe 5,000, to face Guthrum's four. If those numbers are right, or even a little less, it would make the coming battle one of the largest of medieval England's history. Guthrum, of course, heard that Alfred had escaped the marshes, and whatever irritation he felt that his patrols had not captured him earlier, he must have felt the weight of the moment on his shoulders. At least now he could take Alfred in open battle, and he was sure he would. He had the better men, each one a well-trained and battle-hardened warrior of the Norse, and Thor and Odin would be with them. Nothing, especially a bunch of Anglo-Saxon farmers with pitchforks, could stop them. So he gathered his forces and marched out to meet Alfred, forming up his army in front of an ancient Iron Age hillfort, itself set on a ridge rising 740 feet from the surrounding countryside, close to a village called Eddington. Guthrum had heard by now that he was outnumbered, and by positioning his army here, he had made sure he could not be outflanked. Alfred made straight for him. At some point between the 6th and 12th of May 878, the armies met, at first facing each other, summoning the courage it would take to move forward into the teeth of men you knew would be trying to kill you. The army of Wessex formed a long shield wall, each man's shield overlapping that of his neighbour. Guthrum's Vikings did the same. And now came the moment. With roars of encouragement, the men of Wessex began to move forward. Skirmishers from both sides rushed ahead, launching javelins which stuck in shields weighing them down. Many engaged each other in one-on-one -on -one combat, eager to display their courage and skill. The Anglo-Saxon line was edging ever closer, some men taking last swigs of mead to steady their nerves. The Vikings were thundering insults and challenges, 
calling them little puppies and begging them to come and see what Norse steel tastes like. The Saxons roared back, calling them arse-stinking swine and telling them they'd be running like little dogs soon enough, just like Uber. What a time to be alive. Still, the men of Wessex edged closer, until, just a few feet away, they roared and surged forward as one, crashing into the Viking shield wall which held firm. All the way down the line, axes now hacked down in great chopping motions, severing arms and cleaving through helmets and skulls. Screams were instant and the noise overwhelming. Short swords crept beneath the rims of shields to plunge into groins, legs and bellies, opening them to release blood and guts steaming in the air. Over their heads, the second rank of men held shields aloft, trying to catch and deflect the downward cuts of axes and thrusts of spears. The third and fourth ranks were thrusting their own spears forward, hoping to catch a shield on the rim, turning it to expose the man behind, at which point swords would flash forward into faces and necks. The shields themselves could be deadly, the heavy iron rims and bosses used to smash open men's faces, break arms or steal the wind from an enemy's lungs. The press of a shield wall was like nothing we can imagine today. You're as close as lovers to your enemies, faces pressed intimately near, the pressure from your army behind forcing your shield almost to your chest and your opponent the same so that you could almost bite each other. Men could smell the mead on each other's breaths, see their rotten teeth and the colours of their eyes. They could see the sudden grimace of pain and the deafening scream of death in their ears whenever they found a gap in the shield wall, and watch the light disappear from eyes right in front of their faces. Eddington was not a tactician's battle. There was no room for manoeuvre, no space for clever stratagems. It was simply a long, brutal slugging match. The two masses of men were crushed together, heaving against one another with great shouts of rage, malice and pain. Their loud chorus mingled with the great cacophony of battle, of weapons striking wood and iron, of shouts of encouragement and insult, cries of pain and anguish, and the smells of blood and terror-emptied bowels. Alfred prayed while Guthrum invoked Odin. Alfred held tight to the crucifix around his neck. Guthrum touched the iron of Thor's hammer around his. The battle lasted hours, neither side willing to give way. It was a titanic struggle of Norse and Anglo-Saxon, one of the great clashes of two martial cultures. Eventually, there was a decisive moment. A single man-sized space was carved open in the Viking shield wall, which wasn't refilled quickly enough, and into it poured the men of Wessex, now cutting left and right into unprotected flanks. The men either side of the gap in the line instantly died under the assault, and the next men along instinctively turned inwards to protect themselves, now leaving them open to attack from the front. In what would have been mere seconds, a small gap could be turned into a big one, 
and now Anglo-Saxons were surging through it, creating a mad, desperate melee behind. The entire Viking shield wall now disintegrated in moments, as each man along realised he in turn was now at risk of attack from the side or behind. But discipline held in the Wessex lines, and aside from the men who had poured through the Viking gap, Alfred's own shield wall remained locked together, and now one step at a time mowed through the disorganised and chaotic Viking mass. Panic now rippled through the Norse, trapped as many were between the Anglo-Saxons and the ridge. It quickly became a rout, and the rout a slaughter. The vengeful men of Wessex taking years of hatred out on the backs of fleeing Vikings. Guthrum managed to escape on horseback with a small but sizeable force, but managed only in getting back to Chippenham, where he locked himself inside the city. Alfred followed him, scoured the surrounding countryside of food, and waited. Just two weeks later, Guthrum emerged full of apology and surrender. From the very brink of utter defeat and barely clinging to survival in a desolate marshland, Alfred had managed to pull off one of history's greatest ever comebacks. It earned him the epithet, The Great. Alfred accepted Guthrum's surrender with conditions. First, he would take from Guthrum as many hostages as he wanted, and give the Viking none in return. Second, Guthrum was to leave Wessex and never come back. Third, and possibly most significant for long-term relations between the two men, Guthrum and his leading figures were all to convert to Christianity and be baptised. Guthrum agreed. In a poignant moment for Alfred, a short while later, 30 of the Viking army's most senior leaders, as well as Guthrum himself, were baptised in the waters surrounding Athelney, where Alfred had begun his resurrection. Guthrum gave up his hostages, and at the end of summer he left with his army for Mercia, and finally for East Anglia. Because the final part of the agreement between Alfred and Guthrum was that Alfred recognised the Viking leader as the new king of East Anglia, and formally accepted that the lands of Northumbria, East Anglia and Eastern Mercia were now part of what became known as the Dane Law. Dane and Danish being bywords for all Vikings. Those lands of England would now be subject to Danish law and recognised as such by Alfred. Western Mercia and Wessex would be Anglo-Saxon. It's astonishing to think that Alfred would have signed away such a large part of England. But Alfred had his eye on the bigger picture, the long game. He knew that by giving Guthrum power in East Anglia and converting him to Christianity, he would calm the man's aggressive instincts. And more importantly, by sanctioning that a huge swathe of England belonged to the Vikings at the same time as demonstrating that Wessex was too strong to be beaten, he created a situation where it was actually easier for Vikings to emigrate to the Danelaw for land rather than constantly invade Wessex. It didn't stop all Viking incursions, of course, 
and the cynics among Anglo-Saxons must have pointed out that Guthrum had broken his word before. But Alfred was right. Guthrum never again took up arms against him and died 12 years later in peace. For the time being, peace worked for Alfred, allowing him to build up the defences of Wessex and Mercia. And for the first time, he began calling himself the King of the Anglo-Saxons and referring to the people of Angleland or England. Because Alfred the Great was a visionary, a man who saw that all the Anglo-Saxon peoples should be united as one nation, even those he had currently signed away as ruled under the Dane law. And now he would set about crafting a foundation from which he and his ancestors would begin to take back what the Vikings had won. And a certain wide-eyed, shivering child that Alfred had led into the marshes of Somerset would be one of the keys in that process. Aethelflaed grew into a warrior queen, the Lady of the Mercians, and she and others would go on to create a new nation for the first time. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bite-sized battles relies on the kind support of the people who enjoy what I do. You can too through the link in our website at bitesizebattles.com or through our Instagram at bitesizebattles. Help me to bring history to life.